this is the fourth lecture. We have one more to go tomorrow afternoon. Whether you can make it here with all the distractions of Friday afternoon, that'll be up to you. I'll be here, Lord willing. Everybody has let me know that Wednesday is better than Tuesday, and that's okay. Uh, uh, don't mind that. Uh, yeah, but um, just remember, there's seven heads on three beasts, okay? And I think we're pretty sure on five of them, maybe six of them, if it's the United States. So there's only two beasts heads left to go, and it's only for a short space and one hour. So whatever they are, they're going to be bad, and it's going to be persecution, and the two beasts, the woman on the beast is going to reign supreme. So if, if you remember that, you got the future night, okay? Now, let's have prayer. We begin. Heavenly Father, we just call upon your Holy Spirit so much to lead and guide and direct our thinking tonight. Lord, it's a battle for the mind. And we pray that our mind and heart will be hid in you so that nothing can touch us in the time of trouble. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I don't know, but I just like this phrase, clasping hands across the gulf. There's our two flags. I don't know when they're going to come together, but they haven't yet. So what phrase comes to mind when you see this picture? Somebody tell me. Huh? Well, yeah, but what are they doing there? There you go. There you go. Clasping the hands across the gulf. Who said that? Okay, just checking to see if you remember. You would be right if you said Ellen White, one of her best-known statements. Found in the Great Controversy. It was first made in Spirit of Prophecy, Volume 4, in 1884. And uh, we're going to look at that paragraph closely in conjunction with the sea beast and the earth beast because that's what it's talking about. And using the illumination provided by the Bible and Spirit of Prophecy, we're going to look at world events for clues as to where we are in the prophetic timeline. That's what prophecy is all about. Jesus said, I tell you these things now so that when they come to pass, you will believe. And we're standing to the right of about 80 to 90% of prophecy being fulfilled. And I hope you take great comfort that that fulfilled prophecy gives us strength and courage to stand on what is yet to be fulfilled because that's faith. So let's read it. Through the two great errors, the immortality of the soul and Sunday sacredness, Satan will bring the people under his deception. While the former lays the foundation of spiritualism, the latter creates a bond of sympathy with Rome. The Protestants of the United States will be foremost in stretching their hands across the Gulf to grasp the hand of spiritualism. They will reach over the abyss to clasp hands with the Roman power. And under the influence of this threefold union, this country will follow in the steps of Rome and trampling on the rights.
me, this is one of the, this paragraph alone is one of the strongest evidence for the spirit of prophecy being resident in the life of Bella White. Absolute amazing paragraph, and we're going to look at each phrase because it's loaded. Now, this is not the fulfillment of this prediction by Ellen White, but it is a historic moment. And you can see there on September 24, 2015, Pope Francis is the first pope to address the joint session of the U.S. Congress, and he's reaching up to shake Yeah, I guess it would be Joe Biden because uh, Trump and the other presidents, it was not in there yet. So they are shaking hands. Of course, you know that Joe Biden is a very devout Catholic, as was John Boehner. And the place is full of Catholics. There are 70 to 80 million Catholics in the United States, and they vote people in. So this is not the actual fulfillment, but it's certainly a new relationship. All right, uh, just presaging tomorrow's uh, lecture to two allies. We have, isn't that a most beautiful rendition of the American buffalo? Somebody paint. I think that's a painting. It's really an amazing painting. Uh, the sea beast, the earth beast. So let's read the two texts. We want to stay Bible-based, Bible-grounded. Revelation 3, 3, I saw one of his heads. That's the sea beast, remember, it has seven heads. As it were, wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed. There's a lot of time between those two phrases. And all the world wondered after the beast. Now, remember, that's after the deadly wound was healed. So we're not talking about the earth wondering about the beast in the dark ages. This is when it's healed and it's after, it's yet to come. When they worshiped the dragon, which gave power unto the beast, that's Satan, powers all of these beasts, and they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? It's going to be so overwhelming, power. Well, Daniel 11, 45. The king of the north is going to push with ships, which is the economy, and with the military going to have all the cards in his hand and it's going to be pushing. Now there's a lot of pushing and shoving been going on, but when that push goes, that's the big one. Revelation 13:11. let's read about the earth beast. And I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth and he had two horns like a lamb and he spake as a dragon. So there's a lot of time in between those two phrases. And he exercises all the power of the first beast before him and causes the earth and them to dwell therein. He worships the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. So the dragon is giving power to the sea beast, and then the earth beast is giving power to the sea beast. It's a very interesting way things are going. And he does great wonders, so that he make a fire come down from heaven on the earth the sight of men. We're going to talk about that. He deceiveth them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast which had the wound by a sword and did live. We're going to 
talk about that at length. And he had a power to give life into the image of the beast, he being the lamb-like beast, that the image of the beast would both speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. As a young child growing up in the Adventist church, I wondered how many of us were going to be killed. Do you ever worry about that? That's pretty sad. I have some comfort in the fact that when the image of the beast is made, the Sunday law has come, or is coming, very shortly. And it won't be long. You'll make up your mind. And after the close of probation, it's clear that there is no need for killing because everybody's made up their mind. It, it would serve no purpose to be martyred for a witness after that. So I don't know if the Lord wills, we shall make it, however he decides. All right, these two texts and the quote are what we're going to look at because it's the healing of the deadly wound, the union of church and state that we're interested in. I think we mentioned this last the other night, transgression has almost reached its limit. And we're going to find out when that limit is towards the end of this. Confusion fills the world, a great terror seemed to come upon human beings. The end is very near. We who know the truth should be preparing for what is soon to break upon the world as an overwhelming surprise. You're going to see what the overwhelming surprise is here by the end of this. Our time is precious. We have but a few, very few days of probation. We should fear to skim the surface of the word. You see that? There's courage for me there. Because I went deep Tuesday night, it says we shouldn't be skimming, okay? Just saying. All right. So, quick review, the two beasts. The composite sea beast has components of Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome, which is the mysticism of Babylon. Mithraism is Sunday worship of Zoroastrianism. The human philosophy of Greece. And that figures big. The philosophy of the body of this beast comes from philosophy of Greece, and that is what Roman Catholicism is based on, philosophy, natural law, and the iron jaws, pagan rituals of Rome, came out of the sea, which means it came out of the Mediterranean basin that nations, people can come. There is none other than the medieval papacy, blaspheming God, making war with the saints, and prevailing over them through the dark ages. The old world was under her authority, and people fled to the new world. So there's the five heads. Fifth head that sustained the deadly wound, February 15, 1798, when the Pope was taken captive and he died in exile. You know there was another Pope inaugurated after he died. It's just that he wasn't seated in Rome in the Vatican until 1929. So there was another Pope shortly thereafter. There's always been a Pope, but he just didn't have any temporal authority. All right, sixth and seventh head, another beast coming up out of the earth with two horns like the lamb. We live in the time of the sixth head, okay? During the time that the United States, as it is in power, and that sixth head of the beast, there's no union of church and state, so the beast is gone. I mean, the civil power of the beast is not doing anything like it was doing before the fifth head. This, of course, you've seen. It is a shocking picture when we first saw it. It's almost like, oh, ho-hum. 
Yeah, it seems normal now. There's presidents and their wives and Condoleezza Rice, and just like her husband. You don't see that very often, but that was amazing, John Paul II. Well, how many Christians are there in the world? I just was reading up about October, they're estimating 7 billion people in the world. 2.1 billion Christians, of whom 1.2 billion are Catholics. Obviously, there's a huge contingent of Russian, Greek, and other Orthodox beliefs, uh, Evangelicals, Protestants, etc. Islam, 1.3 billion. And then it breaks down from there, Hinduism, Chinese, Buddhism. I don't know who comes up with these, but somebody pulled the statistics together. And then here we have the list of popes. There have been 266 popes since Peter, and no, this is not a listing of the seven literal popes, seven literal heads, okay, just let you know. But uh, I was born in the reign of Pius XII. I don't know where you all were born. Um, so I've, I remember John Twenty-Third slightly, Paul VI. I actually was in the Vatican, in St. Peter's Basilica, in 1975, by the way, I went through two holy doors because that was the Jubilee year, so all the, the five holy doors in Rome were open, and you get 18,000 years out of purgatory for going through a holy door. But I did not go to confessional, so I didn't get the 18,000, 17,000 years. But we, we decided, just before we left on Sunday, Cheryl and I decided to go over one last time because it is an awe-inspiring, amazing, blow-your-mind moment when you're standing in St. Peter's Basilica. And we were clear at the back because it was completely full, and I said, I don't know, something's about to happen. So we were clear at the back on this side, and coming out of that door over there was Paul VI on his litter carried by six men. And I was standing there like this, didn't even take a picture, you know what I mean. And he just came right in three feet of us and went down and he was touching babies and the whole 50,000, 70,000 people were just going crazy. I mean, unless you've ever experienced it, it's totally amazing. So anyway, we're up to... I want to let you know some of the antecedents of what's going on. This 21st Ecumenical Council was called by Pope John XXIII. He opened the council. He died before it was over and Paul VI presided over the conclusion. There was a great number of liberalization of ideas and uh, practices, including doing the mass in English instead of Latin. People could use guitars. People were encouraged to start studying the Bible. But there was not a single doctrinal change. There now, there was one change. We are now no longer heretics, but we were separated brethren. I, in reading up on this, they mostly say other Christians. They don't use the term separated brethren, and that was more commonly applied, applied to the Protestants. But, uh, so we're still separated brethren. We're other Christians. We have a validity if we accepted Jesus, but we haven't experienced the full salvation until we accept the Pope and the seven sacraments. And of course, that's what they're doing. And just a look-see at the last pope and the current one. And I always like these pictures. What's that on their, around their neck? One's black and one's 
for us. Malta's cross, okay? The Pope is the head of the Knight of Malta military order. It's been going under a shakeup because uh, the last general of the order got rid of his deputy because he was handing out condoms to letting the priests hand out condoms from Latin American country and the Pope. No, the general of the order didn't like it, but the Pope did. Pope Francis did, so he basically pushed Matthew Festang out and there's a new interim now. But the Knights of Malta is the military order in there in all the governments around the world. What does it say? The King of the North is going to push back with what? With ships and military. And all of these people are in place. That's where it's coming from. Okay. With that little background, let's look at the first sentence here. Through the two great errors, the immortality of the soul and coming sacredness, Satan will bring the people under his deception. Now, body goes in the grave and your spirit or breath goes back to God and grave. Are you aware of how singular and unusual your belief is? I mean, truly it's a scary thought. And the serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die. So the lie of Satan that you will not surely die started in earnest in recorded history with post-diluvial Egypt. This immortality of the soul started with the pharaohs. The pyramids was a resurrection machine. That's what the Egyptologists call it, a resurrection machine. And so the mummified body of the pharaoh was awaiting his ba and ka, which was the breath and the soul, to come get back into the mummified body, and then they went up to heaven somewhere and lived where all the pharaohs lived. So that's been since time immemorial. Early Jewish history, this is from the New Catholic Encyclopedia, just so we'll know where it's coming from. That early Jewish history shows that the Hebrew nation did not believe in a future life is sometimes stated. <laughs> Isn't it funny how the twist of a sentence can sort of change the whole history picture? Of course they did not believe. They believed like we believed before they started believing Plato. It would, however, on a, a priori grounds, have been incredible that the Hebrew people could not have held this belief, considering their intimate contact with the Egyptians on one side and the Chaldeans on the other. So we're supposed to believe that this common belief that they were exposed to the Chaldeans and the Egyptians, so they had to believe in life after death. Well, it wasn't until Plato and the Hellenistic Jews began to incorporate this notion of the duality of, you know, that all of these tables, chairs, everything dual and there's a soul and a spirit and all of that's when they begin to pick it up so for Plato the soul was a being quite distinct from the body related to it as the pilot to the ship the charioteer to the chair the rational soul is the proper soul of man it is a divine element and it is this which is immortal that's Plato but now look at these next two statements mind boggling 
the immortality of the human soul is one of the most fundamental tenets of the Christian religion. We saw the encyclopedia. But now, who is he to believe in? Catholic philosophers have generally claimed to establish the validity of belief apart from what? Revelation. They just told you that their whole belief in life after death is not based on the Bible, it's based on Greek philosophy. That's what they just told you. The soul is a separate entity from the body. We know that body plus breath equals what? You are a soul. You don't have a soul. You are a soul. And there's a huge, huge difference. When the soul that sinneth it shall die, when the body goes to the ground and the spirit goes back, do you still have a soul? No. Realize there's not many people in the world that believe that. Okay? You're, you're some of the only ones. I went to the Baptist website. It was pretty clear. The Methodist website was basically, well, Wesley believed this and some of us believe that. So whether we're in suspended animation after we die or whether we go to heaven after we die, we'll have to wait for the second coming to find out. Wasn't that an interesting cop-out? But look at the Baptist one. We see there's abundant evidence in the scriptures that when a child of God dies, he goes immediately to be with the Lord. This is the BaptistBibleHour.org. We see another beautiful example of this truth in the death of Stephen. Rather than being humbled and brought to repentance, they were angry and decided to kill the messenger. But he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked steadfastly to heaven, etc. What a way to die. As they were stoning him, he looked into heaven and saw Jesus ready to welcome him home. You notice the leap of faith that occurred in that phrase. Or presumption. Then we read the words of the Apostle Paul, for to me to live is Christ, and me to die is gain. Paul viewed death not as an extinction or soul sleeping, but as a positive move to something that was better. He considered it gain. So I didn't go to a lot of other websites. You can go look and see. But by and large, everyone, what most church believers don't even know what their church believes. In fact, one of our church members brought a wonderful Methodist lady they're, they're friends with, and they cook together, eat together. She's my Methodist wife. They brought her over here one day and showed her the Methodist Museum. She didn't even know what Methodist is. She was just totally amazed. If she can just understand the Sabbath, she may become so forever grateful to her Anyway, history is so important. So it's not our purpose here to review the large number of quotes from the Catholic Church because I think you know them and they do make a claim that it's their mark of authority the same Saturday to Sunday. So I just want you to know you're a very unusual people to believe in. Now, I'm asking you a question here. You know, this Two great deceptions, the immortality of the soul and Sunday's sacredness. Do you feel comfortable? Do you feel convicted by the teaching of Scripture that the soul that sinneth it shall die? Do you feel comfortable? I mean, I know we all say that in the quietness and happiness of this room today. But when you get out there and people are saying, Grandma just died and went to heaven, she's looking at the grandkids, you better be good, kid, because Grandma's watching. What do you say? 
Yeah. I mean, just remember, we have got to hold on to the biblical truth and impart it when we're able to in love and grace. But this is tough. In my dad's experience, when you talk to evangelists that come to your church, people will accept the Sabbath before they will accept the non-immortality of the Sabbath in this part of the country. A lot of the other country, they don't know where you go and who cares, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow is not how you know. All right. All right, now let's ask the next question. How does the belief in the immortality of the soul lay the foundation of spiritualism? How does the belief in the immortality of the soul lay the foundation of spiritualism? It is part of the threefold union, spiritualism, that will influence this country to follow in the steps of Rome. I'm quoting from this paragraph. That would lead me to believe that spiritualism is going to be a big deal. Do you agree with that? Now, does spiritualism look like a big deal right now? Depends on what you call spiritualism. And we're going to look at some of the definitions in a minute. Yes. Yeah. I don't stay up for that, I guess. <laughs> but good luck. <laughs> All right. Now, the rebirth of modern spiritualism occurred in 1848. And we're talking about physical media. Okay. So we're going to talk about that. So there's plenty of evidence of the supernatural, is what you're saying. Somebody was just telling me that somebody supposedly died, went to heaven, but they came back and you could see that ethereal angel on the car or whatever. Who, who was telling me that? Yeah, it, it's this thing, you know, we've seen books written on this. Little kids went down through the tube, you know, towards the white light. And then the angel said, go back. And then the kid reported all this. This has been a year or two ago. And then what? Three weeks later, he said it was complete hoax. I hated all that. Um, so there's plenty of it going on. You're absolutely right. Here's the three Fox sisters, and there is the original house. It's long since burned down, uh, and the replica of it that was built was burnt down. And so now Lilydale in New York, they have lots of pictures and things of what went on. But this is the origin of modern spiritualism. Uh, the wrappings occurred in the Fox family house on March 31, 1848. The story is a bit convoluted. The house had supposedly been haunted. They moved in there. They were laying in bed, and they were hearing rappings. And so they got up, and one of the girls rapped back, and it rapped to them. And then it, they started using wrappings for letters, you know, like one rap is an A, two raps is a B, and so they were able to communicate in writing. And they found out that somebody was buried under the ground, and supposedly they found them a few weeks later, but then everybody else says, no, it didn't happen. So everybody has got an agenda on whether something really happened or didn't happen. But nevertheless, this phenomenon went crazy for about 20 years. And they held seances in big cities and did all these things. And then they all three said it was a hoax. And that really messed everybody up. But then two of them stayed with that, but I think it was Margaret 
Margareta, she went back into it, but they all died within about three or four years after this. But spiritualism lived on. It became a religion officially in November 1 of 1893, after 1848. And at that time, the U.S. census in 1890 was 63 million, and so several million people, that's the people who marked that they were spiritualists. That doesn't tell you all the rest of the people. You know, if you look at the census on how many Adventists there are, there's something like 40 to 100% more Adventists in America who claim to be Adventists than come to church, but they mark it on there. So, anyway, spiritualism was quite a big phenomenon. It certainly was in England in particular and when it spread to Europe. We're talking about the physical medium stuff. We're not talking about all the voodoo dolls of Caribbean, we're not talking about the witch doctors in all of the countries of Africa, we're not talking about any of that, we're talking about the rebirth of modern rapping, physical medium, spiritualism. Alright, let's get some definitions. Spiritualism is a science and philosophy and religion of continuous life based on the demonstrated fact of communication by means of mediumship with those who live in the spirit world. They don't talk about the dead, they're talking about spirit people. Uh, we think when you, you, you die, you're dead, and Catholics and everybody talks about talking to their dead relatives. You know, the spiritualist, well, these are in the spirit world, they're alive. A spiritualist is one who believes on the basis of his or her religion in communication between this and the spirit world by means of mediumship and who endeavors to mold his or her character and conduct with the highest teachings derived from that communication. A medium is one whose organism is sensitive to vibrations from the spirit world and through whose instrumentality intelligences in that world are able to convey messages and produce phenomena of spiritualism. So, now, what does spiritualism consist of besides physical mediums. You know, spiritualists consider themselves to be prophets. Of course, clairvoyance, clairaudience, gifts of tongues, laying on of hands, healing, visions, trance, apport. That's production of objects. You'd be watching and all of a sudden a trumpet would appear above the medium or some physical uh, thing. Uh, levitation, raps, automatic and independent writings, paintings, voice, materialization, photography, psychometry, and any other manifestation, proving the continuity of life is demonstrated through the physical and spiritual senses and faculties of man. So Ouija boards and palm readers, everybody. I mean, what I'm trying to tell you is the whole world are actually spiritualists by definition, except for hopefully Seventh-day Adventists, and maybe there's a few other people. Because if you are communicating with another person in the spirit world, then you are a spiritualist. Now, the spiritualists think it's restricted to mediums because that's a professional thing. You know, really. The Catholics do not like spiritualists because they want to control the communication with the dead. So if you want a Catholic and you want to talk to mama, you have to go to the priest who will become another one. Whereas the mediums, once you become a medium, you don't have to go through a priest or anybody else in order to do it. So what I'm telling you is that these 
three things, spiritualism, prostate Protestantism, and Catholicism, they're not talking to each other totally yet. They don't believe in each other. We're going to talk about that. Early on, Adventists were interested in spiritualism and its effects on the people. J.H. Wagoner, who was a pioneer out of the 1844 movement, wrote a book called The Nature and Tendency of Modern Spiritualism in 1860. It passed through five editions before he died. Ellen White was familiar with spiritualists in Battle Creek and other places and quoted several of their works. A number of Adventists became spiritualists, and there was a few spiritualists who became Adventists. So there was a lot of back and forth. They knew each other. And as you might expect, it, if they saw that spiritualism was one of this trend, this union, then they were interested in it. We've long lost our interest as a denomination, particularly. I mean, we don't talk about spiritualism that much that I'm aware of. But anyway, we're going to talk about it some more today because it is a big deal. This is from the Spirit of Prophecy. I want you to I want you to see what she says, and then I want you to see what a spiritualist says during the same time period. They don't like each other. Modern spiritualism resting upon the same foundation is but a revival of the new form of witchcraft and demon worship that God condemned and prohibited of old. It is foretold in scriptures which declare that in the latter times some shall depart from faith, giving reason to deviant spirits. Paul, in his second letter to the Thessalonians, points to the special working of Satan in spiritualism, notice that, as an event to take place immediately before the second coming of Christ. So that would be important to realize. There, is, there are other places in Scripture that talk about this spiritualistic phenomena than just Revelation 13. Speaking of Christ's second coming, he declares that it is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders. There it is, 2 Thessalonians 2.9. So Satan is going to work with all power and signs and lying wonders. We're going to find out later that he's going to do it through spiritualism. Now, I'm not sure what she's including in the word spiritualism. It may be broader than just a physical medium, but nevertheless, that's what he's going to do. Peter, describing the danger to which the church was exposed in the last days, said there were false prophets who led Israel into sin. So there will be false teachers who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them. And that's one of the hallmarks of other denominations and also particularly of spiritualists. You'll see what they think of Jesus here in a minute. It's really interesting. But he's not what we think. Here the apostle has pointed out one of the marked characteristics of spiritual teachers. They refuse to acknowledge Christ as the Son of God. Concerning such teachers, the beloved John declares, who is a liar, but he that denies Jesus is the Christ. Spiritualism, by denying Christ, denies both the Father and the Son, and the Bible pronounces it the manifestation of what? The Antichrist. So... They sort of all work together there. They're going to work together. They just aren't saying the same. They're not singing the same tune off the same hymn book yet. Now, here is a very sarcastic, cynical statement by a spiritualist quoted in Wagner's book. And this was 1858. 
Now, this is the spiritualist talking. The author of this pamphlet holds, which means the author of this pamphlet is J.H. Wagner, on scripture authority that all conscious life in the human being ceases at physical death to be restored again, if at all, at a future physical resurrection. He considers the doctrine of the immortality of the human soul, quote, a heathen superstition, and contrary to the teachings of the Bible. Consequently, he finds it an easy matter to prove from the infallible word, seemingly to his own entire satisfaction, that all communicating spirits are devils, whom he identifies as the three unclean spirits like frogs which came out of the mouth of a certain beast, dragon, or false prophet, seen by a symbolic medium. Who's that? John in Patmos some centuries ago. Did you see how sarcastic? I mean, this guy's just foaming at the mouth over this thing. Perched on his lofty pinnacle of scriptural exposition and divine authority, the Reverend Mr. Wagner hurls anathemas and wrathful threatenings unsparingly, not only upon the wicked spiritualists, but also upon all churches and people who do not accept his extremely rational views. We commend the work to such readers as might desire a new illustration of the infallibility of Bible expounders and the beauties of religious exclusives. That spiritualist was not happy with J.H. Wagner. He just didn't like it. Now, spiritualism has had many detractors and is particularly susceptible to mediums who use deceptions to practice hoaxes on the unsuspecting public. And that is one of the main reasons why spiritualism began to go into decline. Because in the, it peaked out in the 1890s, 1900s, but along came some very interesting people. And I'm going to show you some of them. Unfortunately, now this is a spiritualist, Reverend Lionel Owen, South Africa North Spiritualist Church. Unfortunately, human greed ultimately led to widespread fraud, especially where materialization was concerned. As a result, the numbers of avowed spiritualists declined rapidly, a situation further weakened by divisions within the spiritual movement. They broke up into Christian science, theosophy, spiritualism, and Christian. Isn't that an interesting oxymoron? Christian spiritualism. There's an actual group of people, Christian spiritualists out there. Well, the magicians got involved. This is the famous escape artist Houdini, Keller, Blackstone. There were major, I mean, there were no movies back then. So you either went to see opera, which was live, or you went to see drama, or you went to see a magician. And Houdini was a great escape artist. And Houdini, for some reason, did not like the spiritualists, although he had a love-hate relationship. He knew Sir Arthur Conan Doyle very well. How many know who Sir Arthur Conan Doyle is? The, the author, a physician, and later a spiritualist who wrote Sherlock Holmes. They were friends for a while, but when Houdini just got to boring in on these spiritualist frauds, they parted ways, obviously enough. And Houdini was able to pretty much show that he could reproduce anything that was going on in a seance. And so him and Blackstone and Keller and others, they simply, this relentlessness of Houdini's well-publicized campaign resulted in the dissolution of the friendship we talked about, those carrying out the frauds were considered charlatans who took advantage of the public. 
etc. So although spiritualism was losing favor in the public eye, it did not deter the true believers from speaking out about their beliefs. And this is from the National Spiritual Summit of May to June 2018. This is pretty fresh right off the page. So there are still in... Uh, Well, I don't want to anticipate myself, but there's a quote that comes up here to talk about this in just a moment. All right. Okay, this comes from Spiritualism Foundation, National Spiritualist, August of 1958. What do they say about Jesus? Listen to this. A plain cross, once understood as to its mystical symbology, to be accepted by spiritualists as a sign unto us of love, faith, courage, and victory. Talking about the cross. It should be our sign unto the world that we accept Jesus as a great medium, healer, teacher, and the forerunner of modern spiritualism. He was a spiritualist in the fullest and finest sense of the word. That's just talk about co-opting something. I mean, they just took it all on. We'll take Jesus and here's who he was. When we love, now look what they say about the Ten Commandments. When we love one another, we shall hold no fear of breaking the Ten Commandments. I love you so much I want to break the commandments. <laughs> as we strive to live to do good toward our neighbors. As spiritualists, so I guess you could take your neighbor's life and break the commandments and there's no fear. As spiritualists, we learn that through a God law of love, if we make mistakes, we can we can atone for them. Through suffering and repentance, we learn to progress spiritually. The door to reformation is never closed, only as long as we ourselves allow it to remain open. Therefore, we need no creed other than the understanding that we alone must be our own master in the freedom and knowledge of worshiping God in spirit and truth. For in Him we live and move and have being. I mean... That's what they think of the Ten Commandments. They don't think much of them at all. There's no fear in breaking them as long as we're striving to do good toward our neighbors. Now, spiritualism and damnation. Spiritualism's message is one of love and mercy and compassion and the true spirit of God. The gospel of damnation to human souls, as fanatical evangelists teach it, is a gospel of hatred and abject superstition. Now, did you know that when Adventists were being put in the chain gangs and given sentences in the court for working on Sunday, spiritualists wrote a freedom a, a uh, friend of the court brief in favor of the Adventists getting off on Sunday and not being persecuted. Now they didn't believe in Sunday and they didn't want to be told to worship on Sunday or any other day, but they thought it was important to send a friend of the court brief to the court who were trying, and we're going to see some of these things that happened to some of our brethren back in the 18 or 1900s. Pretty, pretty crazy. So, now, this is from Eugene Crowell, MD, that makes it important, I guess, 1881. Protestantism will accept spiritualism. Now, this is a prediction by a spiritualist. 1881, we're sort of getting into the high point of this modern spiritualist revival. 
Protestantism today finds itself pressed between the upper and nether or lower millstones of materialism and Catholicism. That's a pretty true statement. A lot of Christians find themselves caught between materialism and Christianity or Catholicism. Each of these powers is bearing upon it with increasing force and it must assimilate and incorporate within itself one or the other of these or itself be ground to powder. In its present condition, it lacks the necessary strength, meaning Protestantism, and vitality to resist the action of these forces. And its only hope is in the fresh blood which spiritualism alone is able to infuse into its exhausted veins. This, that it is part of the mission of spiritualism to accomplish this task, I fully believe, and this belief is founded upon the palpable needs of Protestantism. So he's saying clearly, Protestantism is so stressed out, and it is, that spiritualism is going to provide a relief and a place for it to come. The ranks of modern spiritualism have, from its advent, been mainly recruited from where? The Protestant churches and from the fields of materialism. And when these churches cast off the dingy garments of error, which now deform them and reappear in the spotlit robes of Christian spirituality, all who are now together with all those who hereafter will be arrayed under the banner of spiritualism will gravitate to the reformed Protestantism. And she will then gather the harvest we are now planting. Not one of her children will be lost. Together with the many who are entering our ranks in the camp of Romish superstition will then arrange themselves under the banner of the only church which tolerates, they sometimes grudgingly, the expression of free opinion and through which liberty and science have their present their existence. So spiritualism is describing itself as a haven of rest not only for stressed Protestants, but for Catholics as well. Does it sound like they might, these three might come together at some point? It's, it's beginning to sound like that. All right. Spirit of prophecy. I saw soon that it would be considered blasphemy to speak against the rapture. He wrote this in early writing, so this would be in the 1800s, during the time of the biggest part of the rappings, and that it would spread more and more, that Satan's power would increase, and some of his devoted followers would have power to work miracles and even bring down fire from heaven. You notice how she's quoting Revelation 13, how it's going to bring fire down from heaven, and is equating it with the spiritualistic rapping. I was shown that by the rapping and mesmerism, these modern magicians would yet account for all the miracles wrought by our Lord Jesus Christ. Did you see that? I, I, until I studied this, I had never seen that before. These modern magicians, spiritualists, will yet account for all the miracles wrought by our Lord Jesus Christ and that many would believe that all of the mighty works of the Son of God when on earth were accomplished by the same power. Now that's co-opting Christianity. Not only did spiritualist Jesus, the greatest medium of all, do all of those, but we can do them too. Another J of Spiritualism, this is signs of the times. Spiritualism is about to take the world captive. There are many who think that spiritualism is upheld through trickery and imposture. But this is far from the truth. She recognized that a lot of fraud and trickery went on with spiritualist medium works. But she says this is far from the truth. 
superhuman power is working in a variety of ways, and few have any ideas for what will be the manifestation of spiritualism in the future. And she just says that so quietly and normally that you don't realize that that could be hitting you over the head. <laughs> There's ideas for what the manifestations of spiritualism will be in the future. The signs and wonders of spiritualism will become more and more pronounced as the professed Christian world rejects the plainly revealed truth of the Word of God and refuses to be guided by a plain, thus steps the Lord, accepting instead the doctrines of humanity from you. This is some pretty scary stuff that's fixing to happen, and I want to show you how important it is for you to understand it and be able to avoid it. Now this is from Harry Porton, The Miracle on the Wall, 1954, a spiritual. The reason I want to show you that is because I want to show you what she says next. I want you to compare. Talking about the dawn of the millennium. Spiritualism can become the greatest force for good in the world. A widespread knowledge of the purport of this great truth will inevitably cause all the people of this earth to rise to a higher ethical level of thought. It cannot but create a worldwide humanitarianism which will no doubt set bounds for this sorrowful and disgraceful state of affairs and lift our civilization from looming disaster. Is that, is that that's amazing what spiritualism is going to do. Into the peace of the dawning Christ age, thus being instrumental in establishing eternal peace on earth and ushering in the millennium. So spiritualists feel like they're going to be able to usher in the millennium because they're raising humanity to a new level. Let's see what the spirit of prophecy says. The line of distinction between professed Christians and the ungodly is now hardly distinguishable. Church members love what the world loves and are ready to join with them. You notice what they're fixing to join, what they just said. And Satan determines to unite them in one body and thus strengthen his cause by sweeping all into the ranks of what? Spiritualism. totally amazing. Papists who boast the miracles as a certain sign of the true church will be readily deceived by this wonder-working power. And Protestants, having cast away the shield of truth, will also be deluded. Papists, Protestants, and worldlings will alike accept the form of godliness without the power, and they will see in this union a grand movement for the conversion of the world and the ushering in of the long-expected millennium. This lady is predicting what this gentleman is saying. Exactly. Well, spiritualism has held that a long time, but nevertheless, she made a statement, and this again was written in 1954. You're correct. Strengthen his cause by sweeping all into the ranks of spiritualism. That sounds very important, doesn't it, to you? We need to be understanding what spiritualism is going to do. All right, this is very important because there is a delay. Don't you think the Lord has delayed long enough, at least on our part? We're, we're, we're tired of it, but he's waiting for something for which we're not doing. <laughs> Again, Laodicea is still drowning in its own happiness somewhere. It was not the will of God that the coming of Christ should be thus delayed. God did not design that his people, Israel, should wander 40 years in the wilderness. Did you know that? 
They said it's going in in six weeks, three weeks. He, he, he promised to lead them directly to the land of Canaan and establish there a holy, healthy, happy people. But instead, their hearts, they did not go in, but those to whom it was first preached went not in because of unbelief. I guess that's what happened in 1888. There's unbelief in something. We're still here. And that, that's not happening. Their hearts were filled with murmuring, rebellion, and hatred, and he could not fulfill his covenant with them. So she says there at the bottom, this is just more about the typology of how what happened to Israel is going to happen exactly to us, what is unbelief is keeping us here. But she says, charge it not to God. Notice this is 1901. This is after the 1888 movement. And you would think after 13 years we would have been able to do something with the 1888 movement, but apparently we did not. We may have to remain here in this world because of insubordination many more years, as did the children of Israel. But for Christ's sake, if people could not add sin to sin by charging God with the consequence of their own wrong course of action. So that that's a very sad commentary in that paragraph because what she's, I think, saying is Jesus could have come but because of our unbelief like the children of Israel it's going to be many more years and it's, that's a long time since Okay, by the decree of enforcing the institution of the papacy in violation of the law of God, our nation will disconnect itself fully from righteousness. Our country shall repudiate every principle of its constitution as a Protestant and a Republican government. We shall make provision for the propagation of papal falsehoods and delusions. Then we may know that the time has come for the marvelous working of Satan and that the end is near. Now, there's a number of things in there that are important in it's hard to believe. Remember we talked about a constitutional convention and how hard that is to hold? There, there's going to have to be a constitutional convention at some point in time to repudiate the Constitution, at least parts of it. But then we may know that the time has come for the marvelous working of Satan. We're going to sort of uh, hone in on what Satan's doing here. The miracle working power manifested through spiritualism will exert its influence against those who choose to obey God rather than men. You hear that? The miracle working power manifested through spiritualism will exert its influence against those who choose to obey God. So communications from the Spirit will declare that God has sent them to convince the rejectors of Sunday, that's you, of their error affirming that the laws of the land should be obeyed as the laws of God. They will lament the great wickedness in the world. How are these people going to come? They're going to come as creatures. They're going to come as angels, spirits of devils working miracles, and they're going to manifest miracles through spiritualism and tell you that you need to quit keeping Saturday and you've got to start keeping Sunday. And that's common sense. There it is right there. Great will be the indignation excited against all those who refuse to accept their testimony. So if you want to get into trouble, just refuse to accept that testimony. That will get you plenty of trouble. 
here is a spiritualist. Let's see what he's got to say. Ever since modern spiritualism came into the world, it has been condemned by the churches, both Protestant and Catholic. No doubt that the reason for it was because communicated spirits did not corroborate their creed, but denied their doctrines of eternal punishment, total depravity, physical resurrection, and infallibility of the Bible. So what he's saying there is the reason Protestant and Catholic churches are condemning spiritualism is because the spirits haven't got it together yet on what we're talking about. And so when they start getting it together, that's going to be this threefold union. I mean, do you see? I mean, they see the problem. They want to bring it together. So, Satan is the angel of light. You've seen this picture a couple of times. We've been talking about those. We're going to talk about Satan. 2 Corinthians 11, 14. No wonder Satan himself comes as an angel of light. As spiritualism more closely imitates the nominal Christianity of the day. You see what why I just read about Sprague? When the spirits start getting their creeds and their beliefs together, spiritualism is going to more closely imitate nominal Christianity. They're going to have to be more happy about Sunday. They're going to be more happy about Jesus. They're going to be, but they're going to move towards nominal Christianity. When it does that, it has a greater power to deceive and ensnare. Satan himself is converted after the modern order of things. So Satan's been working in the old way, now he's going to try the new way. He will appear in the character of an angel of light, a messenger of light. Through the agency of spiritualism, that's the, one of the three legs, miracles will be wrought, the sick healed, and many undeniable wonders will be performed. Remember what she said a while ago? They will perform all the miracles Jesus performed. And as the spirits will profess faith in the Bible and manifest respect for the institutions of the church, you see they're not doing that yet, their work will be accepted as a manifestation of divine power. So when they start saying, yes, this Eucharistic theory is good and this immortality, and they're going to start, yeah, that's good, that's the way we've been taught in this. Nominal Christianity is going to get power because it's going to confirm the fulfillment of futuristic prophecies that the people are looking for. In the last days, Satan will appear as an angel of light and great power, heavenly glory, claim to be the Lord, and he will declare the Sabbath has been changed from the seventh to the first day. And as Lord of the first day of the week, he will present this curious Sabbath as a test of loyalty to him then will take place the final fulfillment of the revelated prophecy. So when that happens, we're well on the way. The beast, two beasts, the two beasts, see I teach the two beasts up there. So they are linked together. If spiritualism is producing miracles, just like Jesus did, they're saying, yes, you've got the right message, and you're going to be in the middle of this hopefully ducking. Now this one, when I saw this story years ago, before the close of time, Satan will work still greater wonders. So far as his power extends, he will perform actual miracles. So as the scripture, he deceiveth them that dwell on the earth by means of those miracles which he has power to do. 
not merely those who can pretend to be good. Something more than a mere imposture is brought to view in the scripture. We need not be deceived. That's going to be tricky. Wonderful scenes with which Satan will be closely connected will soon take place. He will make people sick and then will suddenly remove them from his satanic power. Then they will be regarded as healed. These works of apparent healing will bring physical evidence to the test. Did you hear what you were fixing to be tested on? When your next door neighbor's child is healed at their Sunday church of lymphoma, and your kid's got rheumatoid arthritis or who knows what else is wrong with them, they're going to say, you should come to our church. My kid got healed. What are you going to tell them? That you have accepted the mark of the beast? <laughs> what are you going to tell them? <laughs> it's going to be a test. It's going to be a terrible test. Actually. Notice that while Satan appears to the children of men as a great physician who can heal their maladies, He's actually bringing disease, disaster until the population of cities is reduced to ruins, conflagrations, cyclones, floods, highways. So Satan is showing healing here, and he's showing disaster here. And that's for a purpose. He sweeps away the harvest, famine. Look at all the famines around the world. But here's why he's doing it. It will be declared in the bowl that the men are offending God by the violation of the Sunday Sabbath, that this sin has brought calamity which will not cease until Sunday observance shall be strictly observed. So he's offering peace and healing, telling you that he's changed the Sabbath. Miracles are going, but these horrible calamities are not going to stop until everybody is keeping Sunday. When is the image of the beast formed? The accusation urged of old against the servant of God will be repeated. Talking about Ahab seeing Elijah. And Ahab says, Are you the one that troubles Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but thou and thy father's house, and that you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and have followed Balaam. The wrath of the people shall be excited by false charges. They will pursue a course towards God's ambassadors, very similar that which apostate Israel pursued toward Elijah. Typology, the Antichrist, same thing is going to happen. The enforcement of Sunday keeping on the part of Protestant churches is an enforcement of the worship of the papacy. But in the very act of enforcing a religious duty by a secular power, the churches would themselves form an image to the beast. Remember, it's Protestant America, apostate Protestantism is going to demand that the legislators enforce the Sunday law. Hence, the enforcement of Sunday keeping in the United States would be an enforcement of the worship of the beast in the end. So that's going to occur. There's our famous statement. You know it. We're not going to read it just now. Again, I want to talk to you. Who knows about the Blair Bill? Few of you? Okay. More than a few? That's good. I won't spend too much time, but... I want you to see what Blair did. Remember 1890. We've just had the 1888 General Conference, Righteous Cafe. Spiritualism is approaching its height. And in 1990, the United States had strong Sunday laws prohibiting secular labor. In spite of 100 years of debate and dialogue, it had not convinced most American laborers 
legislatures that any form of coerced Sunday observance uh, should not be done. And so they were just going full tilt. In 1890, the only states that did not have Sunday laws were Arizona, California, and Idaho. And the Women's Christian Temperance Union, all of these organizations were fighting vigorously to have Sunday laws enacted. Eventually, Senator Henry William Blair led the crusade for the enactment of a strong national Sunday law. Now, listen to the tone of this letter. Senator Blair expressed strong opinions concerning his conviction that the United States must maintain a government and a system of education that was distinctively Christian. Did he talk about Christian nationalism just the other day? In the letter, he claimed that only a homogeneous people could be great. I don't have that little headline. Excuse me. He claimed that no nation could exist with more than one language, one religion, and one general form of education for the masses. He expressed the opinion that in a short period of time, Americans would demand that only the Christian religion should be retained in America. He said, I do not believe it is possible the American nation will develop in the direction of toleration of all religions. That is so-called religion. Whether the general public conviction shall be right or wrong, I yet believe that instead of selecting and finally tolerating all so-called religions, the American people will, by constant and irresistible pressure, gradually expel from our geographical boundaries every religion except Christian in its valid form. That's pretty strong. And do you know who was against him? It was a noble man that rose to the occasion, A.T. Jones, and he spoke so incredibly to the Congress that they decided not to pass the Blair Bill. I mean, that, that was an amazing... I don't have time. There, there are documentaries from the church that have reproductions and documentaries of A.T. Jones giving lecture. And, and if you haven't seen them, it's worth the time to dig it up and look at what he said. It was really incredible. Now, let's look at this Arkansas law that was in force in 1887. You know who Robert Crockett was? He was a grandson of Davy Crockett. And he moved to Arkansas and opened the frontiers and speaking before the Senate, State Senate of Arkansas, he said the following. What he was doing, he says, we've got a lot of sad things going on in Arkansas with this Sunday law bill, and I want to introduce into the legislature that would grant immunity to Sabbatarians from the penalties inflicted for working on Sunday. These people are many of them, Seventh-day Adventists and Baptists, they are religiously and conscientiously keep Saturday in accordance with the Fourth Commandment. They find no authority in Scripture. He gives a Bible study saying the Catholic writers all agree with the Saturdays, the Sabbath. And here's what happened. This Mr. Swearingen came from a northern state, settled on a farm in Benton County. His farm was four miles from town, far away from any house of religious worship. He was a member of the Seventh-day Adventist Church and having sacredly observed the Sabbath, by abstaining from all sexual work, he and his son, a lad of 17, on the first day of the week, went quietly about their usual avocation. They disturbed no one, but they were observed, reported to the grand jury, indicted, arrested, convicted, and fined, and having no money to pay the fine, they dragged them to the county jail and imprisoned them for 25 days. They were turned out after 25 days, and the man's only horse was levied on to pay the fine and cost the man $38. The horse was sold at auction. A few days later, the sheriff came again, demanded $36, $11 balance due on the 
vine, and he took the rest of the stuff. I mean, sir, my heart swells to bursting with indignation as I repeat to you this infamous story. I mean, this occurred in the Senate of the Arkansas legislature. There's several others that I don't have time to read. Now, this jumps to 1921. Listen to this. Our brethren, the Southern Baptists, over 3 million in number, in the recent great convention in Chattanooga, Tennessee, May 16, 1921, this is three preachers that wrote this. And it was a letter to the Congress demanding what you're going to see in it. Declared it the duty of our government to safeguard the civil Sabbath so as to guarantee one day in seven a day of rest for every citizen. No labor should be allowed except work for the necessity and charity. We urge upon the legislators to prohibit all trade, traffic, and travel not necessarily for the public good. Many other great organizations of God-fearing citizens from all parts of our nation are asking and praying that public sentiment be built and laws enacted to save our civil Sabbath from destruction. It gets a lot better than this. We have hundreds of national laws to prevent stealing, perversion, and destruction of property of life, but almost no national law to prevent the destruction of the Sabbath. Our nation permits and requires many postal and other employees to work on Sunday. Many millions are being constrained or led through our Sabbath-breaking interstate commerce into the terrible habit of Sabbath breaking. Practically every part of our nation is invaded every Sunday by our interstate armies of Sabbath-breaking trains, newspapers, mails, and allied business for profit. I mean, these people are getting worked up. And I'm only showing you three or four pages. It went on for ten pages. It is cursing the Sabbath-breaking and destroying our people, enslaving millions to Satan's tyranny. It is corrupting the childhood of our nation. It is turning our youth away from God, teaching the great army of our brightest boys to buy, sell, trade, and traffic on Sunday, tearing down the high ideals of our fathers. It is teaching a disobedience, irreverence, and wickedness. This is just because they don't have a Sunday law. It is seducing our children away from God and church and Sunday school. Anyway, I, I could just go on. I mean, they absolutely just, we have sowed the wind and we have reaped some of the whirlwind and worse is soon to follow if we don't turn from this great evil. The First World War was because Europe was not keeping the Sabbath Sunday, and we don't want to have another war because we want to pass a Sunday law and get right with God. I mean, they they did exegesis and hermeneutics on Sunday keeping, and they talk about Solomon and all. I mean, they went all out, but fortunately, it didn't it didn't pass, and uh, we went on. So, do any of you have a Adventist, Natives, Baptist, and Methodist living near you? You probably do. Do you think that kind of stuff is going through their minds? I can tell you that some of them, it does. And they're watching. And as I've talked to several of you, you go out and work on Sunday, a lot of times you'll hear about it. I've started mowing on Friday when and Ellen White is clear. Don't go out and just get in the face of these people and just do stuff to irritate them. As far as possible, avoid it. But uh, if that's the kind of thinking that these people were thinking of in 1921, I assure you it won't be any better. In fact, I think it will be much worse. 
So we're going we're gonna to close here. I'm, I'm giving Stacy an effort here to say that. Have you noticed a crescendo of activity by spiritualism in the 1880s? Attempts to make national Sunday laws through 1880s to the 1920s. Attempts at a twofold union with the papacy. Now keep in mind, the papacy, deadly wound, hasn't even been healed yet. But Protestants already, 50 states nearly, with Sunday laws. I mean, they were already wanting to reach out. I had no idea what could have happened. What happened in our own church in 1888? License by faith, which we must have mostly rejected. The deadly wound began its healing in 1929. Spiritualism was attacked by the magicians from the 1920s onward. Spiritualism fades. There is no threefold union. World War One, distress of nations. I, I think there is evidence to believe that Jesus could have come during this period or after. But everything shut down. No threefold union. No spirit. Satan is not allowed to come down and start using spiritualism do miracles and to do all those things we just read about. But I think it's going to happen this time. I don't think there's going to be a... Um, Protestants are going to do two things. Their belief in communication with the dead will link them with spiritualism. Their keeping of Sunday as a Sabbath will make them partial to the Roman Mother Church. As a result of this, they will stretch out their hands across the gulf to grasp the hand of spiritualism reach over the abyss to clasp the hands of the Roman power. Notice it's apostate Protestantism reaching in two directions. They're reaching for spiritualism and they're reaching for Romanism. This is Protestantism that's doing this. Apostate Protestantism will have formed an image of the beast that is just like the old world beast and persecution of Sunday law will be just around the corner. At this time, the ten virgins who are Laodicea will awaken to the cry, the bridegroom cometh, and five of them will have the extra oil. That's important. Whatever you're doing, make sure you have the extra oil that Jesus offers you. That is absolutely. <clears throat> it is time for thee, O Lord, to work, for they have made void thy law. And when they make void the law, and the Sabbath is replaced, and this substitution becomes universal, God will Who would you rather have? The lion, the lamb, the coming king is coming soon. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the information that you've given us. We can see both in the secular and the spiritual world how things are moving towards the grand climax that your word is predicting. Lord, instead of being quaking with fear for the things that are to happen, Help us to stand firmly on the rock of ages, which is Jesus and your word, and be faithful, submit our lives to you, and become a vessel that you can use to spread the message of your soon coming. For this we pray for each one. We love you in Jesus' name.